Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edge. Um, today, I'm really happy to have John Spiegel back with me. Uh, I, I flew solo last time, but he's back today, so that's great. Um, and I'd like to welcome our guest, Ron Sharon, along today. Um, it's part of our Visionary CISO series, so we're really happy that Ron could come along. Uh, and Ron, I, I guess the first question, uh, the same with every one of these podcasts, I'm not going to change it, is kind of give us a little bit of background on kind of how you started out and how you kind of ended up where you are today. Uh, first of all, uh, Jed, it's good to be here. I'm glad to be on the show. And second, you know, I think I don't have a, a good origin story. It's just like the same old, same old. When I was a kid, I liked tinkering with stuff. I like to take them apart and, you know, sometimes not putting them back together. Um, again, successfully, I was young, uh, but I did like to press the buttons. I did like to experience the technology. And when my dad brought the first uh, PC home, ooh, I remember it was like a AT or XT286 turbo, you know, the ones that had those turbo buttons on them that increased the speed from like, I think, 32 to 64. And everything moved faster on the screen. It's the days you have to uh, uh, put a DOS floppy disk inside and the big ones too, not the small ones. The, the DOS floppy disk inside and you had to put a couple of commands and then only you, you could boot up Windows. Good, good times. Um, so I continued on from there with my love with, with technology and computers. Um, and I got into, uh, I wanted to study uh, it in, in, uh, in uh, university, uh, but I couldn't because I was bad in math. Um, and back in the day, the, the only courses that were available were computer science and you had to have five units in math. And sadly, I only had three. Um, so I did go and study computers in school. I, I, started, I started studying psychology uh, because that's what I could get into with three units of math. Um, but then I left because I took a microeconomics class and I was like, this is not for me. I, can, I need to study computers. I need to study it on my own. I need to succeed in that because that's my passion. Um, so I couldn't find an a, 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 a educational body that will educate me back then. And YouTube didn't exist. So I went to forums. I went to uh, websites. And I learned about, by myself how to do technology stuff. Um, I, I educated myself up. Um, I moved to the United States when I was 23 years old. I used to live in Israel. Um, and I found a job here in uh, being an IT person, IT manager, they called me in a small company. Um, and then I, I moved on from there. And at a certain point in time in a different company, somebody told me, I, I told my boss, hey, somebody needs to take care of that security stuff. And he looked at me and says, you do it. And that's how I got into information security, uh, just by uh, identifying a problem and saying, hey, somebody needs to take care of it and get it in there. Um, that's not the way that works in, uh, today. Today, it's a little bit more complicated, but back in the day, uh, 14 years ago, that was my way in. Question for you. I know, uh, you know, listening to some of your, uh, videos and, and podcasts that you've been in that your background, um, at least when you were serving in the Israeli, uh, military, uh, was in the police force. Um, I'm curious, I, I've met a few CISOs and one of them I know very personally, uh, he, he also was in the police. I'm curious um, how that has helped you or hindered you uh, with uh, cybersecurity. Uh, well, when I was in military police in the, in the IDF, I had a little bit of a different role. We did have a police training um, done, uh, but my roles there were very non-policey. Um, I can't discuss them right now, but they were not police oriented. Uh, but since I am from Israel, I always had that security mind frame from the young, from our young age, we were taught, if you're going on a bus, you have to look at the people in the bus and see, are they wearing a coat or a jacket in a warm day? Um, are they sweating? Do they have their hands in their pockets? Do they look like they're 
looking around, do they look stressed? If you see that, and we were young children, we were like 10, 11 years old, taking a bus to school or taking a bus uh, uh, just to, to go somewhere, we were taught to, to look out for those things. The same way if you're going to a mall, you're going to a restaurant, always have situational awareness of what's, uh, what's around you and how people look. And I, it, I think that got embedded in me. And I think that's why I went into uh, information security because it's kind of the same. You have to be situational awareness for everything. And you have to do an on-the-fly risk assessment. And we were taught that in a very young age how to do. I think you raised something really interesting then. I, I, I'd not considered that, but it's, I think it's well known across the globe that kind of Israel leads the field in cybersecurity. And, and the way you've kind of outlined that right there kind of makes me understand a little bit why. I mean, it's quite an interesting concept that if you're born in an environment where you have to think like that, and everyone's had to think like that, that kind of explains why Israel kind of leads the way. Um, but I, I guess also that that leads on to a little bit of zero trust. I mean, that that is social zero trust. That's looking around and not trusting people they are dressed in coats on a boiling hot day or are sat on the beach in a coat. I mean, it's looking around and, and, and weighing up those situations, which, which is kind of what zero trust is, is not trusting things that are outside of the norm. I don't necessarily like to call it zero trust. I think we've used that term almost to death. Um, I like to refer it more as an adaptive trust, like which is all about, looking at the situation, understanding the situation and, and uh, adapting that trust to fit that requirement from that specific user or from that device. But I'd be interested. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it at the moment. There's talk about zero trust. There's talk about SSE and SASE. And I'd really be interested to know what, what your thoughts on that are. Well, here's something I when I start first hearing that term zero trust, and I, I agree with you. It, be, it became a marketing phrase, which I don't like. Every time somebody engages with me, uh, trying to sell me something, they use it. We do zero trust. We do zero trust. But then, okay, what else do you do? Do you do anything that I actually need you to do? Um, so you're right. It became an overused uh, uh, co combination of words. Um, to me, what I found strange is I always, and let's go back, back in time again to my childhood, I always had zero trust in mind. So when this concept came out, I'm like, wait, Weren't we doing this all along? Because I know I have. Why would you trust a device on your network just once, you know, ask them to identify themselves just once and then allow them roam in the network freely? That's not how it works. Each area in the network needs to be um, um, addressed. So we used to work in an environment that um, uh, we, we used to call it a trust but verify, right? Now it's never trust, always verify. Um, and that's how I personally did all my security from uh, from our young age um, in the cybersecurity field, that's how I did it. Uh, so when this concept of zero trust came in, I'm like, okay, I'm not really changing anything that I did because this is how I always done it. Um, the old way is is very open and trust you know trustworthy because it's uh, if you let someone in the gate, they can roam on army base freely, even to the most classified areas. It doesn't work like that. Even in an army base, even if you show your credentials and you're going onto the base, for instance, just as an example. Um, if you're going to the nuclear bunker, you have to show another certificate or or another identification to show that you can go in there. Um, and that's the way it should be. We should always identify ourselves. Um, doesn't matter if you've already identified yourself in the beginning of the process. So I completely agree with that uh, with that approach. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those terms that is talked about a lot. And I mean, obviously, as part of the podcast series, we we kind of interviewed John Kindervag and we look back to when it came about. And I've said on many podcasts that I've literally spent the last 25 years doing things like merge and acquisitions and open new sites and, and plugging all those sites together and really making the problem worse and worse and worse because networks were fundamentally designed for all devices and all users to be trusted. I mean, Windows is one of those things that d- d- definitely does that. Um, but I always relate to, I mean, I like your army base analogy. I always kind of have the analogy of a hotel. Like you don't just go to reception, get a key, and they trust you just to go and find your room. You you normally, nowadays, you need to use your key in the lift. It will only give you access to the floor you get to, and it will only give you access to the room you are required to access. And that's really the way I think we should look at things kind of moving forward. It is to check and check and check to make sure that those people and those devices are who they say they are and what they are. Um, okay, so so let's pivot a little bit. I mean, I I, I quite often do this before, uh, before we record these podcasts. I stalk you a little bit or I stalk the guests a little bit kind of on LinkedIn. So I stalked you a little bit and I noticed that you... Um, back in the day, you you were a, a CIO and a, and a CISO like jointly for a company, um, and there's a lot of talk at the moment about who the CISO should report to. Should they report into the CEO, the CIO, the COO? And I, I actually saw you've been posting some of this kind of stuff on on LinkedIn recently. So I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are, and then maybe me and John can give what our thoughts are. But who who do you think the C, CISO really should report to? Uh, in a perfect world, um, again, I'm not speaking for anyone else, but in a, in a perfect world, the CISO needs to report to the CEO. Um, a direct line to the head of the company, notifying them about very grave security risk, uh, information security risk, um, and things that are might come or are coming or things that happen. It shouldn't be layered by um, a bunch of other uh, uh, holders of, of uh, different job holders, like uh, you know, VPs and such. It should the person that's in charge of security in the company, it doesn't matter his exact title, if it's a director, a manager, they need to report to the head of the company. Um, and that's just how it needs to be. Because if they report anywhere else, um, it takes out of, of the capabilities of that person to do their role. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I agree with that. I mean, it, there are some caveats to that. I think it depends on the, the maybe the size of the company. Some companies yeah and i said i said in an in ideal yeah. situation if it's a 100 or 200 person company it's it's hard to do yeah. it right it's not it's not feasible uh but if it's it's a fairly sized company um they need to have like a, a switch in uh the way they do things in a certain point and say hey we're big enough this is the time to take security seriously and this is how we do it yeah i mean it's quite common still in the uk that the cio in fact will report to the cfo who then reports to the ceo because it kind of grew out of the finance department so in a lot of cases you've got the cso reporting to the cio reporting to the cfo reporting to the ceo so that the cso is quite low down in that kind of hierarchy and then they they kind of that they really need to police and police is maybe the wrong term, but they need to keep an eye on really what the IT teams are doing. And, and yes, they need to sit alongside and they need to help the IT team. But I've seen in the past where the CISO hasn't had the power that they've needed to have to control the IT team because they actually report to the IT team. 
and that's a bit like marking your home homework. I I, I kind of struggle with that. Um, but John, I, I wondered what what are kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think I agree. I mean, if it's a Fortune 500 company currently, um, my recommendation would be for the CISO to report to the CEO. Um, that said, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens in 10 years in this movement with zero trust if you know some of these security problems start to get solved. Um, and we we we've talked about it in the past that you know security is kind of that original sin of of networking and Hopefully, with zero trust, SASE, SSE, some of these new technologies, over the next 10 years, we start to solve some of these things. Um, and then the question becomes, you know, is it still a need for this uh, role to still report to the CEO, or does it become more um, integrated into the greater good of of the company because in a sense, you know, security should be all throughout the company. It should be pervasive. It should be part of the fabric of how people operate. Um, I know we, we haven't really talked about it a lot, but this concept of digital citizenry where children, you know, like my, my daughter who's upstairs, uh, she's probably on Roblox again. Um, she needs to understand, you know, how, how to, how to act, uh, online and and some of the best practices that she needs to perform. So I think it'll be interesting to see where we stand in 10 years. And, you know, if we solved some of these security challenges, if we haven't, you know, the reporting position probably stays the same. But my, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, so I'm optimistic. I'm hoping we do. And if we do, uh, you know, maybe that role doesn't have to report into the CEO Maybe it's CIO or uh, hopefully it's part of the fabric of the company and and, and people. But I'm optimistic. I, I think that, I mean, IT kind of grew out of finance generally because it was kind of IT came around really because of kind of ERP systems in reporting. And that's at least my experience. And And I think we're old enough and wise enough to have grown in that industry. I mean, you talked initially about having uh, a 286 computer. I think that's more or less where I started. Um, and we were lucky enough to evolve with the time, make mistakes. We were all learning in that process. There was no white papers. There was no best way of doing things because no one had ever done a lot of what we were doing. So we've had that luxury of of kind of growing organically, as did IT. and security isn't a new thing. I mean, maybe cybersecurity is relatively new, but we grew into security as well. We went from having no passwords to your ERP system to, okay, we need a password. Oh, now we need a user account to go with that password. Email came along and forced people then to have more and more passwords. So we've been very lucky to evolve over, over that period of time. And I think for us, we were able to learn on the job. And, and we did a, a podcast recently with um, Jim Tiller, and we talked quite a lot about cyber burnout and, and what led to cyber burnout and what leads to kind of that pressure. And, and for me, I think a lot of the pressure is we're unable to make mistakes on the job anymore, like maybe we did when we were starting out, because those mistakes in security can be very, very visible. They can be like career limiting, they can change. And if you're a CISO, they can definitely come with some very big penalties, whether that be losing your job or financial penalties. Um, but I know, Ron, and I've seen you talking about things like resumes online. I've think, seen you talking about the skills gap and is there a skills gap? And, and I'm certainly seeing 
a lot of jobs being advertised in IT, in security, in cyber, not being filled, but I equally see as many people looking for jobs that don't seem to be tying the two together. And and I know you've talked about this in the past, but I'd be curious for to, to hear your thoughts on kind of, is there a skills gap? What is going wrong? And kind of does the pressure in, say, security cause this burnout or not? And I know that's kind of a few questions, but... Let's let's start from okay. It's a big onion, and we need to be peeled. So let's start from the first layer. The internet was never built to be secure. The internet was built to have information somewhere stored and somebody else getting it. No problems, no fuss. Napster, we remember it. You know, you, you it's before all that legislation come in that you can't copy digital things because nobody ever done it before. But that was the basic of the internet. You wanted something, you had that something somewhere, and you went get it to get it. No security, no laws, no questions asked. The internet at its core was never built to be secure. Everything we're adding right now, it's an afterthought. Nothing was baked into the internet protocol to be secure. HTTPS, FTPS, all the S's are baked in now. It's like, oh my God, we need security. We better add some security to the internet. And this is what we have. It's a patchwork of security things. So that's the internet. So as cybersecurity professionals, our job is to protect the thing that was built to be unprotected. It's, it's of course, a very challenging job. Um, and it's something new, relatively new. Computers have been in the world for like, what, 50 years now, starting to early on computer until we're out today. I think nobody took cybersecurity or information security seriously up, up until like 15 years, started thinking about it seriously up to 15 years ago. Um, it's completely new in, in, uh, in, uh, in technology terms, something that hasn't been thought about. And, as something completely new and that was patched together because to save the internet uh, from being stolen. Um, so is things like, you know, uh, and this one of the thing, uh, reason that leads to burnout because um, it's like the story about the Dutch boy that plugs, uh, puts his uh, finger in the dam and the water just come keep coming in. This is the work of a cybersecurity professional. We put our hands in the dam and then 10 other holes pop up because Microsoft issued an update. That's how it works. Um, so that's one of the one of the things that leads to burnout. There's always something happening. There's always new vulnerability. Um, um, the skill gap problem is a, a problem that was created from that because the, the internet because the internet was never built to be secured, and we threw a bunch of things together to make it secure. There is no clear framework of how a cybersecurity department, a job, or um, a role needs to look like. Um, so everybody's, you, you look at job description, we're looking for an entry-level um, cybersecurity analyst that needs to have a CISP, uh, CISP a CISM, a, uh, a SANS certification that costs $16,000 in the job description. Now, does an entry-level junior penetration tester or cybersecurity analyst need those certifications? No, but the job description still asked for them for the sole reason, again, there is no framework to say, this is what a junior cybersecurity analyst needs to look like. This is their certifications. These are these the roles that those certification can have. Um, recruiters don't understand that. Some hiring managers don't understand that. And there's a lot of people that are self-taught. They said, you know what? I don't want to be uh, a waiter anymore. Um, so, they, so they took down, they hunkered down, they studied um, cybersecurity, they studied Linux, they started Kellen Linux, they studied all uh, Try Hack Me, Hack the Box. They did all those projects, and they are very well-versed in the technology. When they go to an interview today, those homework that they did means nothing to a lot of uh, recruiters and hiring managers.
managers. It's like, well, you didn't have a job before in this field, so we're not going to hire you. Um, I had a, a contact with a military person that did two years, uh, 10 years in the Air Force, two years of them in uh, signal intelligence. That person goes on interviews and he's being told that he doesn't have uh, enough technical experience to be in cybersecurity. And I'm like, that's mind boggling because where else are you going to find a 10 year graduate of the Air Force, two years in signal intelligence, which is exactly what a cybersecurity analyst does. Um, you can't teach him how to use Sumo logic, for instance, I don't understand. It takes like two, three weeks to, to teach someone that. Um, so that's where okay, we peel the onion. Internet is, was built on, uh, was built as something that's not secured. We're all trying to plug in uh, holes in that big dam that keeps, the, the hole keeps coming in. And the skill gap, just because inherently there was no framework, um, so people don't understand how the industry works. That's a, that's a mouthful and long. <laughs> I think there's two sides to the coin though too. Um... I think the other side is uh, the company that or the, the the team that is recruiting for this position also has to bears a bit of responsibility. Um, you mentioned the the gentleman or the person that came from the military that had the experience, or you know maybe it's the waiter that you know spent late nights uh, learning Linux and and hack me and and so on and so forth. Um, it's also behooving on the on the employer to also set up a culture for uh, receiving these types of of people um, because. If they do it right, if they do a culture of you know learning, of mentoring, of bringing them in, and and having your senior level engineers working with these entry level people, that's uh, you know you can foster success pretty quickly. Um, I had that opportunity within my team. I brought in a, a gentleman who just uh, mustered out of the Air Force, a lady who was taking um, Cisco networking classes. She had no experience. I mean, her previous experience was working at Costco. Um, and, and, and uh, we we established this culture where uh, the senior level engineers they mentored both of these people, and uh, come to find out, you know, five years later, uh, she's working at Amazon in cybersecurity. He's now at Arista uh, doing automation. So uh, I think you know also the company or the, the group or the management team has to create that culture to allow these people to come in because to your point, there's a massive need for uh, professionals and uh, you have to bring them in and, and train them up. Yeah. I mean, I always used to recruit people. I mean, I, I had the luxury of when I started out in my career to, to manage a, a support desk and it gave me the opportunity of running some quite large teams and therefore hiring and those people would grow and those people would t take off to the next job, like mid-level jobs. And I had the luxury therefore of being able to kind of pick and choose people that came on board and I would hire people based on their work ethic, their attitude, their willingness to learn. But then again, these were entry-level jobs and we paid entry-level money and we had a training program because we knew the systems we had in place and we kind of, you had IT and you had all these other mechanisms that were frameworks, as Ron mentioned. They're not, they're not, they don't really exist so much in cyber. And when we talk about cyber, a lot of people, I think, don't understand quite how big a field it is. If you're a network engineer, you can almost go from one switch to another switch to another switch manufacturing and kind of understand it. But a SOC engineer is very different than maybe a penetration tester, maybe very different. So it's we label it with cyber, but it is a very different field. I mean, and I quite often talk to to my mum about what I do as a job and that I work in IT and she thinks I can fix everything with a plug on it. 
And I think there's a lot of people out there that see cyber as being a thing and you need to learn and understand the whole of it. And I don't think you can. And, and when I was later on in my career and I was hiring kind of third level engineers or project members, it was harder because you couldn't necessarily just pick a school lever because you did need someone with five, 10 years experience. And maybe there is a gap in the middle somewhere. Maybe we have CISOs that have transferred, say, out of the military or come in from that kind of high-level environment that have transferred over being from a head of architecture or a head of infrastructure that understand security. But maybe there is that kind of gap in the middle of those people that would train the very new people into cyber. I, I don't know. I mean, that could be a thing. Um, but one of the things I think companies really need to be aware of is you have to start somewhere. If we don't let people in the door and companies don't let people in in these entry-level positions, we'll be in the same place as we are today in 10 years' time because there won't be anyone in the middle to help mentor and coach. And I think, yes, you need to take a risk on people. Look at someone that's got a really good work ethic. Look at someone that's willing to learn. And like you said, John, take somebody and assign them to that person to coach them, mentor them, help them, train them. But also, we do need those frameworks, as Ron said. Yeah, to my point, to my point, it's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem. And uh, if you don't lead from the front and you don't create the culture to accept these people into the company, uh, you're not going to find success. So that's my opinion. That's absolutely true. And I used to and I write about this on LinkedIn all the time. I used to work for a startup, which will remain nameless, uh, um, that preferred hiring people from uh, um, Harvard and Yale. And I'm like, well, Harvard and Yale, I do have respect for people that, that studied in there. But sometimes you need someone that didn't go to Harvard and Yale, that has a certain, that has a different thought pattern from people that went to Harvard and Yale. These are the people you want to work in on your technology teams. These are the people you want to work on cybersecurity teams. Because if, if you all think about things the same way, we're in big trouble. We need someone to think out of the box because this is how the... This is how we get penetrated. This is how bad actors get access. They're thinking out of the box. And we don't have if we don't have out of the box thinkers in our team on our side, it's not just it's it's just not gonna work. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a really good topic, and that's diversity. I mean, we we've we've asked people on the podcast quite a lot about diversity, and it's a, a quite a delicate topic out there, but it's one that certainly I like to talk about, and I'm I'm thrilled that. There are different people from different areas, different sexes, different races now getting into IT. I spent probably the first 20 years of my career going on training courses and everyone would be a clone. They'd be a 25-year-old, 30-year-old white male on the training course. There was no people of color. There were no women. It was not a good place to be because every time you came up across a problem, everybody in the room would solve that problem in exactly the same way, because we all got taught, we all had the same mindset, and we were all clones. And I can see that it's very different now. And it's, I, I think that's really good, because nothing's better than having an open debate and a conversation about how to fix a problem. Everyone's opinion should be counted. Everyone has come from a different area and has a different set of eyes on things. So I'd be interested. And, and John, maybe I'll start with you first. What, 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 do, what do you think about that? 
I mean, yeah, you, you're on you're on to a, a very good point there. If you have everybody that thinks the same, uh, guess what's going to happen? Uh, you're going to get the same same results every time. I mean, if you think about it, think about a, a company that's well established, that's mature. Um, you know, you brought up, and I'll I'll, I'll go there. Uh, Harvard and and Yale. Um, you know, you you hire those people into a mature company. Um, they're going to be financed. They're going to be MBA level. Um, they're going to know how it, how to run a mature company. You put them into the same situation in a startup, um, they're going to flail because they're going to be concerned about the bottom line, the costs. Um, they're not going to be thinking about the long term over the horizon. How do we get this product, you know, um, different than everybody else instead of a me too product? Um, that's that's the difference there. So uh, hiring a, a, a group of diverse people with different mindsets, um, perhaps not from an IT engineering background, but maybe from, um, you know, uh, maybe maybe it's English literature, maybe it's political science, maybe it's history. Uh, they can pull from uh, different trains of thought, different ways of learning and uh, bring out an idea that may not have been uh thought about or uh, considered and create that real market differentiator or in the cybersecurity realm, uh, they may see a problem in a different way and see it in a way that maybe that uh, bad cyber actor is looking at it and uh, and help you, you know, get these things resolved. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for, you know, diversity of thought. Exactly. So all we need to do is just look at like some, some startups, um, um, they, a lot of startups um, were uh, first came out with uh, high school dropouts, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, uh, high school dropouts. Um, a trajectory of uh, these startups was tremendous, like they shut up and overnight to do great things. Um, and all of a sudden their progress stalled. And it's funny to see because, uh, you know, all these high school dropouts that got all their high school dropouts, I'm sorry, not high school, but the college dropouts that got their college dropouts friends to work with them and create great, amazing companies, all of a sudden have on all of their job descriptions, uh, MBA required, uh, bachelor in science required. What happened to your initial, you know, push to have diversity to, to, to just succeed, to learn on your own? Um, and these companies, you can see when once they started kind of asking for these MBAs for their junior management roles, they stalled, like trajectory stopped, and all of a sudden it just became like this. And it's, it it happens. It's maturity of a startup. That's how it always, almost always happens. They shoot up, go like this, and uh, and and I just don't understand, like. You know, all these great companies, um, all of a sudden requiring these high end. Uh, uh, graduate degrees, despite the fact that all of their founders never finished or graduated from college. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, when I was running a, a project team, I guess 10 or 15 years ago, I, I had to, we were working on some really big projects, and I had to kind of flesh the team out and get more staff. And I advertised the role. Uh, I had a number of resumes, CVs, we call them, like pass through my desk. And I remember going back to our hiring team and saying, why have you only given me like five? I'm sure you said there were like 400 applicants. And they said, well, anyone that didn't have a certification or a qualification, we discarded. And I said, I, okay, I, I really want people with experience. I, I don't want someone that's just possibly gone out on a boot camp and, and, and certified. I mean, 
I have nothing wrong with certification. I think it's quite a good thing to do, but not instead of experience. Certification could, should come along and and kind of tick off the fact you've gained that experience. To me, it's a bit like a, a driving test. I mean, you, you, you take your driving license when you've proven you can drive. You don't cheat and just turn up and, and do it. I mean, I know, John, you you got some certifications and I got some in the past. Um, but for, for me, it goes back to kind of the work ethic and stuff like that. I I, I wouldn't have a problem hiring anyone. I, I don't care where they're from, what color their skin is, what sex they are. It all comes down to whether I think they can do the job. And that's not always hard to figure out in, in an, a small number of interviews. Um, but I, I guess... So you came out of the Israeli military, and, and one of the things that I've noticed um, in Israel is there are a lot of females in startups, in IT, in cyber. When you were there, was that normal as well, like that you had a range of sexes? Um, first of all, let me go back a little bit for the certification part. I, I have also a lot of certifications. One of the certifications I have is a PMP, a project management certification, which is highly desired. When I took the PMP, and I did not know a lot about project management before I got the certificate, uh, and I wanted to learn it. And me, as a young professional, I'm like, oh, I'm going to take a course, and they're going to teach me how to do project management. When I started the course, the first words out of the instructor's mouth is, I am not going to teach you project management. I'm going to teach you how to pass the test. And I'm like, okay, that's great, but I actually want to learn how to do project management. So actually, I took the course, and then I took another one so I can learn how to do project management because I wanted the, inf the, the information. The, the certificate for me was just a byproduct of the information I received. But a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people just take the certification to have it. The worst certification to have right now, which is funny, is the CISSP because it's, it became so easy to get that people in the field right now are making fun of it. I see, high, I see college graduates, 21 years old, saying, I just got my, CIS, my CISSP. And I'm like, how is that possible? When I got it eight years ago, I had to show I had experience. Like you guys wrote emails to my past bosses for the past five years to prove that I have the necessary experience to become a CISSP. And I'm like, how these, how are those uh, um, college graduates have enough experience right now to become a CISSP? So it's the certification is nothing right now because there's courses out there that teaches you just how to pass the test, uh, which is sad. Yeah, I agree. Uh, now, going back to your original questions, uh, when I was in the military, there was no cyber. Like cyber was just maybe... Uh, a twinkle in someone's eye. Again, we had like a um, 48, I think it was like 48, 800 modems, 24, 400 modems, you know, the ones you put on the phone line, like it, 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 cybersecurity was something that were, was probably like three people in, in a shack somewhere in the military. So there was no cyber when I was in the military. Uh, but yeah, I was in a joint base. I think that 40% of the people in that base were female. So uh, when I did my job in the military, like I always, almost always had like a female counterpart. What was it like when you moved over to the US? Did, was it the same? Was it male and female kind of split or were you a bit shocked that it was kind of male dominated? 
Um, in, in what aspect? In cyber, again, no, cyber wasn't wasn't existent. I think just back then. I think just in IT in general, because certainly in the UK, back then it was very kind of male orientated, and I'm not familiar with what it was like in the US. But was it different? I think in Israel it was also male oriented back then, um, and here it was also male oriented. Um, just in the rate, I think only like in the past maybe ten years. I've seen a, a female uh, participation in IT and cyber just skyrocket, uh, but that's something that's really recent. Yeah. Okay. I, I, so we're we're slightly running out of time, or starting to run out of time. I've got some more kind of questions I'll ask you before we get to kind of the fun ones. But one of the ones I like to ask people is kind of a twofold question. The first part of it is, if you could advise your eighteen-year-old self back when you were eighteen what would the advice be to yourself? And if you were 18 years old today, what advice would you give yourself around getting into the industry? Um, networking. Networking and not the IT networking, but talking to people, making connections, making genuine conversations. Um, that is gold because um, that's how you get the good roles, jobs, that's how you know what to study. That's how you know what to learn. Um, always network and advise. Uh, ask people for advice. If I knew that when I was eighteen, I would have, I would have started networking with the old BBS, uh, BBS or forums or whatever it was back then. Uh, when LinkedIn first came out, I would be the first one on there and starting uh, con connecting and and posting. Um, I would start very earlier. And people, it's something that they don't teach you in school. They don't teach you that in, in college. Networking is important for any kind, type, shape, or form of your future self. That uh, would have uh, would definitely done different when I was 18 years old. And if I was 18 today, the best advice I can give myself is um, keep your head down and study. You know, for if you're if you're 18 and you want to get into the business, or 19, or 20, or 21. Um, Keep your head down and study. You know, you tell your friends, I'll see you in a couple of months. Um, um, go take the, you know, you don't need to pay a lot of money to get educated. There's a ton of free information out there on YouTube. You can pay nominal fees on try hack me, hack the box and do home projects, build your own network, hack your own network and put all of that on GitHub and put all of that on LinkedIn and show your progression and show that you know what you're doing. Um, and of course, network. Yeah, I see one of the things that I've advised anyone that's worked for me in the past is is about networking. Is it about going to face-to-face -face events when when we could and they're starting to come back again now? Obviously this was kind of pre-LinkedIn and before you could do those kind of things, but it was even talk to people within the business, make friends with the management team in the business, with people in certain departments, the senior management, all of those things. Make friends with them, network with them. Try and understand the business. Try and understand what they want personally. Then go to events and try and do that. But I think the thing that I've come across a lot with certainly IT people is we are nerds and we are geeks. And quite often they're not. We're not great in and proud of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely proud of it. But it, it it also is sometimes against people's kind of, I guess personality to 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 go and just walk up to someone at an event and have a conversation i mean a lot of us kind of 
got into the industry that we're in because we were shy and we were scared and we wanted to be able to sit in the corner and away from people and which is funny because you kind of start out your it role most often and not on a support desk which is talking to people all the time but it's generally on the phone or on email and even more so you kind of hide away from it so i think kind of LinkedIn's done a really good job for people because I see a lot of people who are really, really active on LinkedIn and share some really, really good information. But when I've met them face to face and gone to have a conversation with them, you can see it's a real struggle. But you would never know because that kind of online persona that they portray, they can hide behind it. They can, yes, they can record a video, but they can do it over and over and over again if they make a mistake and they can kind of get it right. Whereas if you walk up to someone and you kind of stutter your words and you make a bit of a mistake, you feel a little bit shy and maybe you won't do it again. Um, But certainly my advice to my 18-year-old self was it doesn't matter if you make mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. Kind of get out there, talk to people. And if if it doesn't go great the first time, try, try again. Um, John, what what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely – uh, you got a network and it's, it's hard. It's really hard for a lot of people that are more uh, technology driven uh, because, you know, and especially now with um, devices, I mean, iPhones and, and devices like that, I think um, I, I, I compare it to, you know, my grandparents' generation, uh, you know, uh, they were kind of like what we call in America, the greatest generation um they were all about social you know they would drive an hour and a half to go visit friends for uh an hour and a half and and drive back um that's not something we really do these days uh and uh you know some of the stories they would tell me uh it was very much about interaction with people whereas you know we're more interested in tiktok or uh the tire fire that's twitter or facebook or or you know things like that but uh, i think that's that's the area if uh, you know, to your point, network, but also develop that um, that uh, skill of conversation and uh, being able to get yourself out there, I think that will will take you a long way. So, Ron, we've got a few fun questions we like to ask at the end of these podcasts. Um, me and John are very passionate about food, probably more so I am than John. Although John's definitely trying to encourage me to branch out on my. Uh, kind of food tasting experiences um i would say bullying me in a way john um <laughs> i disagree with that i'm just trying to open your worlds to great things so it's always a difficult question when i ask someone that's that's lived in israel or is from israel about food because not that i've been yet but everyone says it's got the best food in the world um so i'd be curious to know kind of what is the best meal you've eaten and and where was it so in my hometown, there's a place, a shawarma. Shawarma is like a, a donor kebab. Um, so there's a place in my hometown. Um, every time I go visit Israel, I go there. They have the best shawarma I have ever tasted in the world. And then like after I land, it's, uh, it's about a 16-hour flight uh, from where I'm at to Israel. Um, and after that flight, like my mom, my mom and dad picked up in the airport and said, hey, well, I'm, where are we going to go? And I'm like, I'm going, we're going to that restaurant and eat uh, the shawarma because that's, I've been dreaming about this for like two years or a year since I've been to Israel last time. Um, I don't know what they do to the meat. I don't know what kind of spices they use, but that's the most tasteful piece of pita bread I have ever tasted in my life. Okay, you're going to need to let us know where, where that is so that we can try <laughs> it. Wow. 
I'll send you the address. <laughs> if it's still there, I, I need to Google it. But I hope it's still there. It's been there for like 30, 40 years. So. Yeah, it's funny because when, when I mean, my mum lived for quite a while down in Cornwall, which is like on the, on the coast in England. And every time I would visit her on the way down, I would stop and get fish and chips because there's no better fish and chips in the UK than one from a seaside resort where the fish has just been caught fresh. Um, but over to you, John, you, you go for a fun one. Yeah, so... A lot of us, you know, who've watched you on LinkedIn or in other videos, we we see your background. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the the background and um, you know maybe your favorite drink. So yeah, um, green screen behind me. Uh, this is this is not a real bar. <laughs> I don't have a bar yet uh, in in my house. Um, I've since I got married and had uh, my daughter, I kind of stopped drinking because you know there's just no time. You know that a drink is something you need to sit down with friends and enjoy uh, when you have a little girl <laughs> you, you don't have time that that time fizzes away but the, one of my uh oddly enough one of my favorite drinks was um and i think i got it when i used to live in austin um uh it's a dirty martini with uh tito's oh nice. uh, austin uh, austin austin brand of uh, vodka um so that's that's usually, that's usually my go-to drink solid choice Okay, so one one final question: um, Where would your m most favorite holiday destination be? Either where you've already been or where you would like to go. So I, about five years ago, went to Iceland in December. Um, that is a magical wonderland. If somebody has the thought about the magical wonderland, how it will look like, uh, they need to go to Iceland, where there's volcanoes erupting on top of sheets of ice and the. Uh, uh, northern uh, northern uh, lights uh, up in the sky, magic. Um, of course, if you don't like the cold, that's that's great. Just bundle up. Uh, it's very cold in Iceland during the uh, the, the winter. Did you did you happen um, to but stay? It's, it's amazing. Did you happen to stay in Reykjavik? Of course, I stayed there for three four yeah. days. Yeah, the, the aurora borealis, the northern lights are magical. I I was taken there for my fortieth birthday, which is a while ago, and. We went out on the first night and didn't see anything. And I was kind of really upset. And I was thinking, oh, I'd really like to see them. And then the following day, we went out and it was incredible. We we went out on a bus. We got off the bus and we kind of stood looking up in the sky and it was brutally cold. And I was thinking, what am I doing looking up in the sky when it's <laughs> minus 20 Celsius or whatever it was? And then this just amazing light display started and went on for about an hour. It was incredible. Um, but I'd, I'd like to thank you for coming on um, and anything from you, John, before we wrap. No, this was a great conversation. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.